0: I'm Ron Aaron. A pleasure to co-host this program with Carol Zernil, a nationally known gerontologist. Carol serves as executive director of the WellMed Charitable Foundation. She is the chair of the National Council on Aging and just had a wonderful thing happen. Uh, The president uh, invited her and just 199 other folks to come to the White House tomorrow. The show being recorded before that show airs Sunday. Tomorrow, you're going to the White House. So
1: I am. um, On July 13th, it is the White House Conference on Aging, which is held every 10 years. So, you know, if you miss one, you got to wait 10 years for the next one. Uh this is the first White House conference that's being held actually in the White House. So, the invitation came from the Obama administration, which was kind of a big thrill, you know, regardless of politics. So I don't know what what you are out there, but it's always a thrill when you see, you know, the presidential seal and the White House logo on something that you get uh and it's an invitation. So, it, it this is uh the importance of the White House Conference on Aging, Medicare and Medicaid grew out of the first White House Conference on Aging in 1961. I mean, no directly kidding. those discussions led to the creation of Medicare, Medicaid, and the Older Americans Act. Um, mandatory retirement, uh, Claude Pepper in the 1980s ended because of the White House Conference on Aging in 1981. So you never know what's going to come out of these discussions, uh, really looking at the future of aging, and caregiving is a big piece of looking at the aging puzzle. So, you know, what a treat! I'll have you know something to share when I come back.
0: I may be the only one sitting here who actually knows, as you do, who Claude Pepper was.
1: That's right, the Congressman from Florida, very
0: powerful in a, a number of areas, including issues involving seniors. Absolutely, of which he was. One. He was
1: a senior, and and people forget that once upon a time, when you turn sixty-five. You Everybody, had to you had to retire, regardless of the business that you right. were in. You were expected to retire. That's it. Hit sixty-five. Boom. Done.
0: All of. Them.
1: Yeah, and so we just we we don't remember that that's the way it was once upon a time.
0: So did you have to go shopping? What do you wear to go to the White House? I
1: know I'm still figuring that out. I will have to let you know. I haven't wow. decided yet.
0: That's just two hundred people is like nothing.
1: Well, and and they by contrast, ten years ago, I was a delegate at the. Uh, 2005 White House Conference on Aging, which was held in a big hotel, uh, and there were 2,200 people. Wow. Yeah. So much bigger. This one was determined because they only had – rooms in the White House are not as big as you might think. Oh, they're small. They're small, and that's how many people can fit.
0: That's very exciting.
1: Yeah. So, yeah, White House Conference on Aging. This will be my third. I was staff in 95, a delegate in 2005, and invited to the White House in 2015. So – Take pictures.
0: Well they let you, you I gonna was gonna say, to say yeah, they just they now. just released, right. yeah, in
1: the New York Times where if you saw it in the past week, you'll know that they pictures selfies are now allowed in the White House. So, you know, I don't know if I could the president's very I tall. I don't know if you'll get me and him in the same picture if I hold but my phone up. But he does
0: selfies, he's he's done selfies on national television. <laughs> for which well, you we'll you got see, in trouble, to be you know.
1: determined.
0: That's really cool. Well, congratulations. Thank That's you very, very exciting. Much. And uh, what a, what an incredible honor. Thank, Thank you. I like that. Now, you have pulled together some interesting sidebar material before we talk with Terry Vasquez, who's coming on a little bit to talk about her book, Dealing with Alzheimer's and the Struggle of Caring for Her Mother. Uh, She'll be with us in just a few minutes. But first, I don't think there's a living human being who hasn't heard, put on a pedometer, take 10,000 steps a day, and you'll be fine. It's great for your health. Is it really 10,000 steps? Is well, that what you need to do?
1: I, I love this article that came um, out of uh, Next Avenue, and it's one of their science articles. And It says, how many steps should you really walk? Because this 10,000 steps a day has gotten ingrained in our minds. Right. It's about five miles, in case you're wondering how far that is. But do you know where the number came from? This is what's really funny. I have no idea. All right, so back in 1964, when the at the Tokyo Olympics, there was a company that made pedometers, and 10,000 is a very symbolic number in Japanese. And so they named <laughs> this pedometer, I can't, it's in Japanese, but basically it means, you know, 10,000 step meter, a 10,000 step meter, 10,000 being the symbolic number. Um, and it was really just a marketing name. But if you compare 1964 Japanese people with Present-day American people, back then, they were probably eating around 2,600 calories a day, very low-fat, right. rich in fish, walked around. We're not relying on cars. Fast forward, Americans today, we eat about 3,800 calories a day, mm. um, and we rely on cars. We're very sedentary. We have very high-fat food. So the 10,000 is actually kind of pointless on one hand in that it doesn't mean anything except it's – if. If you don't walk at all or, or you're not active at all and you did 2,500 steps, just 2,500, that would be an important victory. That would be great. Or if you only walk a little, you got to 5,000. So getting active is the point, but the 10,000 steps is not really, you need to do 20,000 steps to overcome our high fat sedentary diets. Oh, wow. So double that, double down and get that 10 miles a day. Uh, the main thing is to get active in your pedometer is fun. But that's not the gospel, to, according to science. It's
0: interesting. I, I know the other show that I, I co-host with Dr. Robin Well WellMed Radio. She often, in encouraging her patients to exercise, they'll say to her, yeah, but but, Dr. Eickhoff, I, I probably can only walk for two minutes. Her answer?
1: Walk for two walk minutes. Walk for two minutes. Walk for two minutes. And there you go. You,
0: before you know it, it'll be three and then five and then ten. So whatever you can do, get up and do it.
1: That's right. That's right. I love that. Yes.
0: I wish you had some more on naked mole rats. You don't today. (laughs) No
1: No. naked mole rats today.
0: But you do know something. How many hours a day should you stand versus sit?
1: All right. So I'm debunking society. I'm debunking all of the numbers that we have running around. So the 10,000 steps. Next is sitting is the new smoking. That's what everybody's saying. We've said it on the air at our sedentary lifestyle. So the question is if sitting is so bad, (laughs) How many hours a day should we stand? Right. All right. So right now, um, the, the average office worker, probably myself included, we spend about 10 hours a day sitting. Wow. Sitting in front of the computer, making calls, writing proposals, sitting, eating lunch. In fact, one of the research says it's built into our culture. You know, the first thing we say is, have a seat. Are you comfortable? Would you like to sit down? We can't get people in chairs fast enough. You know, so we've got all this embedded in our culture. And medical research is saying sitting is as dangerous as smoking. It kills as many people as HIV. It increases your risk of cancer, heart disease, diabetes. So how many hours should you stand a day? All right. The answer is two. So if you work an eight-hour day – You need to stand for two of those hours. Does it have to be consecutive? It does not have to be consecutive. And the key is moving every 30 minutes because after 30 minutes, your metabolism slows down by 90 percent, Wow! which is huge. So all of a sudden, your good cholesterol starts going down. Your bad cholesterol sticks. So the trick is you want to get up and walk around, move, pace, stand up and take that phone call. Within within a thirty minute period, you want to get up for five minutes every thirty minutes, right? And so so that you are moving around during the day. And and I think this research came out of this big push to get those treadmill desks. Um, and
0: yeah, I saw a piece on CNN recently on all of the desk and an office accoutrement that are designed yeah, to have you stand. Yeah, up. and
1: so they're saying, yeah, a flexible desk is good if you could stand up or sit down. But they're saying start out two hours a day um, and work your way up to four hours a day. Now, anybody who works in high heels is going to know standing up four hours a day in high heels is not happening. You shouldn't it's be not worrying. good. To, it's not good for your feet well, they're bad anyway. For your feet. They're bad for your feet. So we're going to have to deal with the shoe issue. More on that to be determined. But I thought it was interesting that the magic number for standing Two in an eight-hour day is stand for a total of two hours a day, but every 30 minutes get up and for five minutes go talk to somebody instead of sending an email, walk around while you're doing phone calls, whatever you first, can do. When uh, I
0: first moved to San Antonio back in 1991, I was doing a talk radio on another station, five-hour show from 5 a.m. to 10 a.m., and I stood for the entire show. Uh, it's better for your diaphragm and it's much better... I remember the first
1: interview I did with you way back when you were standing. I do remember that.
0: Yeah, In fact, you had to stand, too. We had no seats in there.
1: I think you're right. Right.
0: (laughs) It was a funny interview. Oh, yeah. Okay. We won't go there. (laughs) Way back when. It was fun. That was the first time
1: we met. Yes, it was. That was fun. I enjoyed
0: that. Now, next up. All right. Senior Olympics, they're coming back. They keep they're coming this back. week, they're this right, week in right Minneapolis
1: here. going on right now and I have and to there's say. Some San Antonians there. Wellmed is sponsoring the ping pong team from Corpus Christi, Texas, up there competing in the ping pong or table tennis, I guess you don't say ping pong. Excuse me. The table tennis competition. Um, so yes, we, we're we're big into senior Olympics.
0: Well you remember the photographer we used to use before we moved to Houston, Robert Boniella. He was a professional ping pong player for a while. There you go, tennis.
1: like Forrest Gump. Yes. Wow.
0: Unbelievable.
1: That would be fun.
0: Yeah.
1: I would think that would be fun. So why are we talking about Senior Olympics? All right. You may remember. Oh, it's probably. It's, I don't know if it's a year ago, months ago. We were talking about older athletes, right? And how 80 year olds ski who ski and run are in better shape than forty-year-olds. Yeah, but they all
0: live in Finland.
1: Yeah, they all live in. <laughs> it was Norway. <laughs> it was Norway. actually in Norway.
0: Yeah, some so, like that. So
1: the Norwegians came up with this concept of your fitness age versus your chronological oh. age, and they came up with an, um, an algorithm, and you can go online and you can figure out your, your um, fitness age. So the lady that runs the National Senior Games actually took that challenge. It was Dr. Pamela Peak from the University of Maryland, and her fitness age is 36, and she's actually um, a triathlete.
0: Oh, no kidding. So
1: her her chronological age is 61 wow so she was fascinated by this she contacted the researcher in Norway about his fitness calculator and they had all the people that are competing right now in the senior games asked them to complete the calculator to see what their fitness age was well, that's cool which was kind of fun because they got 4200 responses which tells you how many older a real athletes number. yeah how many older athletes there are up there so after all those responses the average chronological age at the senior Olympics is 68 the average fitness age Forty-three, so no twenty-five kidding. years less, just by beca- still being an athlete, and it didn't matter. It was it male or female, that was about the same. But virtually every athlete had a lower fitness age than their chronological age. So, senior Olympics are held every two years. Um, if you start training now, you can be in the twenty seventeen games if you're fifty and over. But hey, you know the the articles, the proof is there. You're gonna walk more than 10,000 steps, stand for two hours, start training for the Senior Olympics, and life is good.
0: You have about 30 seconds to tell us about the teleconnection.
1: Uh, teleconnection sessions, yes, in July. Uh, please mark on your calendars July 23rd at 2 p.m. Central for medications, what you need that could save your life. Our friend Lucy Barilak from um, Montreal, Canada, will be talking about managing medications for caregivers It's an excellent presentation, Thursday, July 23rd, 2 o'clock Central Time. And call and register today, 866-390-6491.
0: Caregiver SOS on air, that's us. Up next, we're going to talk with Terry Vasquez, caring for her mom and the struggles of Alzheimer's. I'm Ron Aaron, and one of the things I'm most pleased about being a WellMed patient is the way in which I'm treated by all the staff at the clinic I go to. And Dr. Robin Eickhoff, that's not by accident.
2: No, it's not. We really spend a lot of time training our staff and asking them to really connect with the patients and get to know them because we consider them part of our clinic home.
0: And the other thing that's really impressive to me is the amount of time my WellMed physician spends with me, and you do the same thing with your patients. Yeah,
2: I, I really do try to, and, and we do a lot, a lot more time than your typical uh, provider can afford to give, and I think that allows us to get to know the whole patient and not just their diseases.
0: That's cool. Don't have a lot of time to talk about prevention, but you do a lot of that as well.
2: We spend an enormous amount of time on preventative measures.
0: Want information about WellMed? Want to be a WellMed patient? Call 210-614-WELL. 210 210- 614-WELL. Thank you so much for sticking with us right here on Caregiver SOS On Air. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zerniel. Delighted that you have been able to find us and stick with us through the opening of the show. We promised we'd bring a really neat guest on, and we deliver. Mary Teresa Vasquez joins us. She has a new book out that deals with uh, uh, the situation involving her mom and the situation of Alzheimer's. Uh, Terry was in San Antonio when we met her. I guess, uh, last fall, right? At Correct. that wonderful conference, Carol, that you put on.
1: Well, well th- with, yes, we did meet her. It was a wonderful conference and we were so, um, pleased to have Terry bring her book and provide it to our caregivers and our audience. And so now we're following up and we want to have her on the radio show. And Terry,
0: first of all, thank you for taking the time to come on with us. Thank you. We're yeah. delighted to have you. So uh, what motivated you? You're a nurse. You you have a, a career that you certainly have worked for over 40 years uh, dealing with people who uh, have f- mental and physical and uh, uh, all kinds of challenges. You live in Washington, D.C., born and raised here in San Antonio. Uh, what prompted you to write a book about your mom? The reason that I wrote my book is,
3: basically three reasons. Just because I am a nurse, I thought I was qualified. But I realized shortly that when you take care of a loved one, you basically you panic and you because you try to do the best you can, you try to find everything that's out there and then your faith and your culture all comes in and a all big bundle of, of nerves and then you realize, wait a minute, you know, back to the basics. Back to the basics. How do you care of a loved one? And and then I realized as I was as I was toiling with myself that I am not the only one out there. Um, that there are a lot of people out there that need to learn how to care of a loved one. No matter no matter who you are, you need to learn how to do it. It's not magic.
0: What were the challenges that were so unexpected for you? You, you know how to deliver health care, right?
3: Absolutely, absolutely. Like you said, I'm an, I've been a nurse over forty-five years. I've been to uh, all different sorts of nursing, including home health nursing, and I realized that, uh, well, for one, she's your mother. <clears throat> and uh, working with, with uh, nursing, I, I look at the total person. from I to tell that's how one was taught in school. And then you realize that uh, mother got very difficult to live with. I mean, to do, do her daily care. And I saw her through the beginning stages, who started early, she had it now, Thomas, for about 30 years. And she started like in 1992. She just kept, get, she kept get forgetful, um, everyday, not not only everyday forgetful, but just really forgetful. And then she started saying cuss words, and she was getting hard to get along with. So then I realized that I had to do something for her. And in the interim as I was doing it for her, I realized uh, that it was, Many, many people. It is, it is in my genes. So I, I knew I had to help. I had to
1: help others. Well, talk a little bit about y- you, your experience with your mother um, and coming from San Antonio, a Latino background. And one of the things that we talked about at the Carrier Summit last year, um, and is also evident through your book, is um, you know a, a, the philosophy. Not, not everyone is the same, and people come to caregiving from different perspectives. Do you think that your experience and your family's experience with caregiving is um informed by being Latino?
3: Being Latino is just slightly different because Alzheimer's as we all know crosses all barriers. But being Latino we're kinda of have this extra extra added on hat, so to speak, to to be thoroughly engrossed in culture and faith. So those two things is what we have to swallow pride, so to speak, and, and, and look for help and get help because the care itself is basically the same. As we all know, there is no cure, but now uh, there is help in coping. In coping, I think it's the answer, how to learn how to cope. And how to learn how to, uh, and we have to get educated. So that's the bottom line. You
0: know, one of the things, one of the things we talked about at that conference, uh, as you recall, is there's no direct translation into Spanish for the word caregiver. That
3: is, that is correct.
0: And so you were put into a role, and of course, as experienced nurse out there in the world, uh, you are very aware that there are caregivers out there, and then suddenly you find yourself in that role. What was that like?
3: It was, it was extremely, um, difficult for me, but until I realized that this was a call back to culture, this was a calling, uh, from, from, due to my faith and due to my culture, that I had to do this responsibility. It is not, it is not, uh, like I was, uh, I was asked to be on a, on a dissertation for, for, for one of my nurse friends, and I was interviewed as well as several other, uh, you know, caregivers, that it's a calling. And that's why we, that's why we do it, and I think that, that is the biggest difference in being Latino. Um, not everybody goes to that call, uh, but it's, that is it. It's a calling due to, to faith and culture. And I'm I'm one of nine children, so because I am a nurse, I think that uh, it, it was more difficult for me. So it not necessarily quali- uh, doesn't necessarily mean you have to be in the medical profession. You have to you have to just answer the calling because of your faith and your culture.
1: So because you were the nurse, is that, did you get the, did, did your other siblings, your brothers and sisters look at you and say, well, you have to be the one to step up because you're the most, in, you know, you're trained in this area?
3: Uh, there are two answers to that portion. One of them is yes, and the other one was three portions. One of them is yes, and the other one had to do with sibling rivalry. Uh, which is big in the Latino community, and the other. That's big in every community. <laughs> Pardon me.
0: Sibling rivalry is big in every community.
3: Right, exactly, exactly. And and then also the, the calling from my dad. Uh, my dad told me I had to
1: take care of mom when he died at a deathbed. Oh dear. So so you got it wasn't just the siblings. You also had this. You know, your father had also told you that you needed to respond to this. Exactly.
0: Now, were you living with your parents at the time, or did you bring your mom into your house
3: at the time when she first started with the symptoms uh she was living by herself at her home My dad and my mom were separated and then uh so i would go i was i was i was, I was in San Antonio at that time and then when the symptoms got worse in two thousand in nineteen ninety nine excuse me then I uh, realized that uh, her care was not up to parish what I thought it should be, so that I took over her care uh, full time.
0: And is that when you moved back to uh, Virginia?
3: Uh, I moved to Virginia in
0: 1995. Oh, okay. If you've just joined us, you're listening to Caregiver SOS On Air, brought to you by the WellMed Charitable Foundation. I'm Ron Aaron. Along with Carol Zernio, we're talking with, Uh, Terry Vasquez, who has written a book about caring for her mother and the challenges that she found in combating and working uh, with someone with Alzheimer's. Let's come back to the things that you said uh, you learned about yourself, Terry, as you began this journey. As a nurse for more than 40 years, there wasn't anything you didn't really know about uh, the day-to-day physical care for your mom. What were some of the surprises that you discovered?
3: I realized that she could no longer do anything for herself, down to the basic care of brushing peace, uh, and bathing herself. She was afraid of water, she was afraid of mirrors, um, and, uh, she, uh, her aggressive behavior of, of yelling and cussing. So I, ha- I was challenged to take, to take responsibility and coordinate her care, because I knew I needed to get back to my husband in DC. So basically, that's that's what my book is. It's how to care for a loved one at one's home.
1: So, what what kind of tips do you give in your book? Kind of t- t- tips, a suggestions. Yeah, recommendations. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. Uh, you have to first of all,
3: you have to accept the responsibility. Because as we know, there's denial. You have to accept it. Okay, this is the way. It's here. Accept it. You have to learn how to care. Educated, uh, you have to. You have to have. You have to be objective. You have to open up your eyes and just actually sit back and look at at, at what one does every day. One gets up. One needs to brush teeth. One needs to um, the basic basic living, and then I, I I I plan her care. I need to. I need to to fix breakfast she needs to eat, down to basics of nutrition, down to basics of, of everyday care, of cleanliness. We need to um, also entertain her. I need, I I made up not only did I make up games, but I went to the thrift stores and bought games because they they easily get bored. We got color books, the simple things like like a toddler. Her brain went all the way down to toddler age. She even told me she was six years old. And then I coordinated the daycare. Daycare is a lifesaver. I have to ask, you have to take care of yourself. You have to take care of yourself. Because if you don't take care of yourself, then you can't take care of your loved one. You will run out. Your energy will run out. Because they have 24-hour, they have energy bunny. That's what I call it. I call her my energy
1: bunny. Well, we know you where you got that one. So you you actually, your mother was in adult daycare. That is correct. And how many days a week did she go?
3: Uh, She went for three days a week. And in those three days, I went shopping. I did whatever I needed to do. You know, see my girlfriend go to lunch and went shopping. And then I realized, wait a minute, I need to do other things besides, besides, uh, you know, go shopping. All
0: right, stay with Uh, us just a minute. Don't go anywhere. We're going to come right back to you. We're going to break for some news, and we will get right back with Terry Vasquez. Here on Caregiver SOS On Air, I'm Ron Aaron. Along with Carol Zerniel, you hear us at 9.30 a.m., the answer. Well, we are cruising right along on Caregiver SOS On Air, brought to you by the WellMed Charitable Foundation. I'm Ron Aaron, along with our co-host, Carol Zerniel. We're talking with Terry Vasquez, a registered nurse who... For over 40 years, has practiced that profession and toward the end of that time began to care full-time in many ways for her mom, who was struggling with Alzheimer's, and she turned that into a book in which she takes a look at from the Hispanic perspective on Alzheimer's health and advice book uh, for those who are caring uh, for their parents or for others with Alzheimer's. And we were talking about your mom uh, did go to adult daycare three days a week. Uh, and you carved out time for yourself, many caregivers, as you know, Terry, don't do that. they burn out uh, and uh, they don't ask for help, they don't do what you did what What made you decide to send her to day- adult daycare? The
3: decision uh, was made because to be quite honest with you, she tired me out, sure. I devoted my time, my whole body, and my soul, so to speak, to my mother. And then I realized, just like just like a typical caregiver, I realized that I needed to take care of myself. I needed to sleep. And and uh, once uh, once that decision was made, I was a better caregiver for her. She just never stopped. She wouldn't sleep at night. She would nap in the daytime. She was constantly going. Not even if. Not even when she got medication, she was
1: constantly going. Yeah, and that's, that's tough. But, you know, adult daycare is one of those services a lot of people still don't know about or understand that, you know, going to an adult daycare center, and, and I wish we had a better name than adult daycare, you know, is yes. really, it's a wonderful program where people get organized activities, whether it's, you know, learning activities, it's physical activities. I know I had a relative in adult daycare and she loved to dance Um, And they did a lot of line dancing so that people could fall along. They did chair volleyball. Uh, And so it really was a nice full day. And and in in doing exactly what you said, try to wear them down just a little bit um, and engage them so that they, you know, you want to maintain those skills and as opposed to having someone come in your home where they don't, necessarily get all that variety of activities and that That's social interaction, um, adult daycare is a wonderful, wonderful service. It is
3: a wonderful thing. But what, one daycare caregiver needs to take charge. Once you realize that this diagnosis is, 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 is here to stay forever, you need to, a person needs to take charge and then coordinate her care. Like you mentioned, Carol, in regards to the daycare activities. Well, I took those daycare activities and took them to my house. We, you know, we play, we play music. Oh, they love music. I played music, her favorite CD between the Fernandez, and on and on and on. And we played ball, and we played uh, games, we, you know, colored. I mean, just simple things. So you have to take charge, coordinate or care, swallow your pride, and, and go forward. You ha- I took her to church, back to culture. Uh, the Hispanic church, they have music. They have music, and they love music. And they also did drawings. They love art. And, and, oh, driving. She never used to like to take a ride around the block. Well, we went down that, that, that freeway, down the, down the real city the road, down to the, the 610. And then we went to the zoo. You need me activity, Those are all in my book, how to take care of your bomb at your home. I'll start at 410, not the
0: 610. Well, 410 is here, right. Houston. 610 is in Baltimore, I think.
1: Right. Oh, no, no, it's in Houston.
3: Oh, Houston.
0: Okay. okay.
1: Everyone has a loop. Yeah, everybody's exactly. got to move. <laughs> yeah. but, but I mean, but I love that. So, so your mom, at, you know, you're, you were engaging in different kinds of activities in it um, when you were with your mom. Sounds like you got some outings as well. Absolutely. So Absolutely. it's full it fresh also, air and I'm, sunshine. I'm sorry? I said you got a little fresh air and sunshine at the zoo as well.
3: Exactly, exactly. And also, i learned that you have to accept help. People, people want to help. If you deal know, with any illness, people want to help. But, but we it's a normal thing about no no I could I can handle it myself. We've all heard that line. I can handle it myself. And and you family, friends, neighbors, the church, anybody, any simple errand will help.
1: And so the answer is yes. When someone asks yes. you if they can help, the answer is yes.
3: The answer is yes, you are not alone. People don't know how to help. Now did we're you very we're very private. I'm sorry. We're very, pri- the Hispanics are very uh-huh. private people with a lot of stigma on us. But, like I said, they don't, they're afraid to act, they're embarrassed. Get over it. it. It's, you need to, you could have run out. You're running out of energy. And then you got two people sick. Who's going to take care of mom or dad or your uncle, your aunt? It, it, it definitely runs in families.
1: So, speaking of family, did it? Did you ask your other siblings for help? Were they able to? Yeah, there were assist?
0: Eight, o- eight other siblings, right?
3: I did ask for help.
0: And
1: did, did Did you get a response?
3: Uh, yes. Interestingly enough, I did. I emailed everybody, I emailed and called. I, I, you in trust in large family, which is very typical. Make sure and tell everybody what you're doing, because everybody wants to be in charge. Everybody thinks that. They are the ones in charge, my big sister, my middle sister, and on and on and on and on. They can do better than I can, so to speak. And what makes me the person in charge is because I'm a nerd? No way. (laughs) And then everybody kind of like, after they voiced their opinion, they kind of went away. They kind of disappeared. It's like, what happened to them? But then something came up after my monthly emails to them, it's like, oh, I told you so, tax syndrome. And this is very typical of the Hispanic people. I told you so. or well, I know better. That sort of thing. So it, it's, a, it's a barrier, which we have to, with with prayer, with faith. I know, I know there's a different subject, but we've got to just, just do it. Just go forward and do it.
0: Did your siblings, if you gave them an assignment, if you asked them to do something, would they do that? Some did. And most did not. Most did not. I think that's typical, is it not, Carol, unfortunately?
1: Well, I don't think it's unusual for families. You know, people have different comfort levels. Um, and and then there's the family dynamics of, no, that's really not my job. It's somebody else's job. I'm not the one that should have to be doing this. So there are but, a lot of things that go in with that. So um, how long did you care for your mother in the home? I
3: care for my mother uh there are different time gaps, different time periods that I care for mother. Uh, mother, I took care of mother between nineteen ninety two when she had her early symptoms, until twenty twelve February of twenty
1: twelve. So that was a that was a long journey. There, you you went through a long period of time that you were doing different caregiving activities. Exactly. And, and did your mother stay at had, home at the whole time, or did you eventually have to place her? Pardon me? Did she live in a home, uh, you know, with, with you or in her in her own home, or did she eventually have to go to a care facility?
3: There are three different sections. In the beginning, she was at her house, and then uh, I took over actually physical 24-7 care between almost um, 1999 to 2012. I'm sorry, 2002 to 2012. Because I realized that her care wasn't up to par, so we bought. I moved back to San Antonio, and this is where the book actually starts. And back to San Antonio, and um, did twenty four seven care for her. And then I realized that my 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 responsibility. We bought a condo there. My responsibility was to coordinate her care. And then I moved back to Virginia. Back to Virginia in um, in 2000, 2002, and then I did long distance care. I saw mother, I flew down there every month to make sure that she was taken care of properly. Well, you had her
0: in but a home in time
1: period, pardon me?
0: You had her in a residential facility?
1: We had her in my condo.
3: Oh, in I the condo, so she's I... still
1: getting services at home?
3: Yes, I had a uh, high agency, agency care.
1: Well, that's 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 a that's quite a feat when you're you moved yes, back to Washington yeah. D.C. and you're trying to coordinate the care. You're a long distance yes. caregiver, so that's you know that's a big challenge in and of itself. But after you've already exhausted yourself with all the hands on care,
3: yes. Not only did I ask for my family for for uh, an actual physical assistance, I also asked for So everybody's money ran out, including nieces and nephews,
2: including all
3: the grandchildren. They also contributed to care, because you need money, honey, as we all know. And then after that, uh, she stopped walking. That was a big factor. She stopped walking, and the agency said it could not care for her. So I put her in a group home. We're very blessed in San Antonio also to have group homes. So I found that through a word of mouth, and then she stayed there until she died in of 2012.
1: So and in case people don't know what a group home is, that's usually... Um, a personal home where somebody takes in, you know, two, three, four uh, people in their home and they care for them in a home-like setting, uh, but they get more personal attention. Um, And we often talk about my friend uh, Brownie that got me started in aging, and he moved into a group home from living alone in his apartment where I got that experience. We do have a lot. I don't know what it's like in other communities, but here in San Antonio, you're right, we have many group homes um, and people can it, often don't realize that's an alternative just to you a nursing home. just have to be sure it's home. a quality home. Absolutely. you got to do your homework. Absolutely.
3: You you are 100% correct. Now, back to culture and faith, we're not supposed to, it's, it's one of those myths, we're not supposed to put our families in nursing home. Um, but uh, I have a niece, a cousin, who asked me for advice because one of her parents I had Alzheimer's. So she said she couldn't handle it, so I, I told her to shop around for a nursing home, and she did. And, and I told her that whenever you go there, make sure that, you know, it's not only nice looking, but make sure, you know, to try to interview the staff, make sure and show up very often, make sure and help them, help them care for her, and suggestions so like that, and it worked for her. It really worked because she thanked me after my aunt died, her mother died. It worked for her. So that is is an option for for people who cannot care, who have other situations of their home kids. You have to totally evaluate the total situation, not not only only, uh, your situation, but the total person,
0: both sides. Now, we have about a minute left, and I I don't want to say goodbye to you until we find out how folks can get a hold of your book. Now, it is in Spanish, right?
3: At the present time, I am busy working on that translation. Okay.
0: So, for those who speak and read Spanish, uh, where can they get your book?
3: Uh, you'd have to go to my website or call me. My website, my mind's gone black. www.mi-alzheimer's.com.
0: Okay. And uh, I don't want to give your phone number on the air. Uh, but if folks go to your website, they can order the book? That's
1: correct. And if you, go to, and if you want to write to, to radio at wellmed.net, we'll um, we, can, we can connect you um, with Absolutely. Terry. And yeah,
0: we, we'll be happy to do that. Well, Terry, Absolutely. we thank you so much for coming on with us. And I, I know in your bio you've gotten very active in a number of organizations uh, that deal with end-of-life and long-term care. Correct. You find that rewarding?
3: I do. I do. As, as back to my nursing career, you you have to think about the total person. In each one, you have to show their respect.
0: Well, I'm sure you do. I got to stop you right there. Thank you very much for coming on with us, Terry Vasquez. And uh, we appreciate you writing the book about your mom. Bye bye. You're listening to Caregiver SOS On Air, brought to you by the WellMed Cheryl Foundation. Up next, take 10 with Carol Zernial and Dr. Jamie Heisman. I'm Ron Aaron, and one of the things I'm most pleased about being a well-med patient is the way in which I'm treated by all the staff at the clinic I go to. And Dr. Robin Eikoff. Uh, that's not by accident.
2: No, it's not. We really spend a lot of time training our staff and asking them to really connect with the patients and get to know them because we consider them part of our clinic home. And the other thing
0: that's really impressive to me is the amount of time my well-med physician spends with me. And you do the same thing with your patients.
2: Yeah, I I really do try to. And and we do a lot, a lot more time than your typical uh, provider can afford to give. And I think that allows us to get to know the whole patient and not just their diseases.
0: That's cool. Don't have a lot of time to talk about prevention, but you do a lot of that as well.
2: We spend an enormous amount of time on preventative measures. Want information about WellMed? Want to be a WellMed patient?
0: Call 210-614-WELL. 210-614-WELL. Oh, I love that little percussion sound. That's nice. You're listening to Take 10 on Caregiver SOS On Air. I'm Ron Aaron. Along with our co-host, Carol Zernio, we are joined each week... By Dr. Jamie Heisman, nationally known therapist, deals with issues involving caregivers and addictions. And so we thought we'd play right into one of his strengths today as we talk about what are addictions all about? Why are people unfortunately willing or not willing to destroy their lives? because of an addiction. And among seniors, Carol, we see this all the time. Drugs and alcohol.
1: I know Jamie has educated us about the growing problem of addictions. And unfortunately, uh, the attitude many times is these are older people. Let them do what they want. We're not going to intervene. It's okay if they drink themselves to death. It's okay if they take drugs. They're old. What else? would they be doing is kind of the attitude. Let grandpa have fun. Yeah, let him have his fun if that's what he wants to do. So, you know, is that the attitude we should be having, Jamie?
4: Well, Carol, you know, you work with WellMed, so we're living longer and longer. So maybe that was the attitude 100 years ago when we were living to possibly 50 and 60 years old. But the last time I looked, life really is beginning for many people at 60, Um, If you look at AARP, their largest entrepreneurial sector right now that are starting businesses are boomers and seniors. So let me return the favor to you and ask you, you know, at that age, is life really over?
1: Well, I would I would have to beg to say, no, I don't think it is. But why is it that we are seeing such an increase Um, in drug addictions, in alcohol addiction among older people? Because that's not the group that most people think about.
4: Well, I think alcohol addiction has always been there. I think, you know, in terms of reporting it, it's always been very difficult because family caregivers are the ones who usually report it. In fact, family caregivers, if you really think about it, are probably genetically predisposed as well the same alcoholism that their mom, father, or, or whoever the family member actually is, because it's a genetically predisposed condition. So I think we're becoming more and more aware that this issue is out there, and we're actually educating, if you will, family caregivers that there's help and treatment there. But to the point of why now, I think we're really looking at substance abuse and senior citizens in a different way because there's such a
1: huge
4: geometric trend to addictions around opiates, benzodiazepines, um, basically so, pain remedies. So and I was over- just say, yeah, so
1: a benzodiazepine, a what? Why, what would I, that look like? What would I know it the name by?
4: Well, it's an anti-anxiety, a benzodiazepine. I've seen seniors on it for, you know, 30, 40 years. In, in the olden days, when Ron and I were around, of course, they called it Milltown. We hear it now called, you know, Xanax or Valium. Those have been prescribed for years upon years by... Doctors, usually primary care doctors, that just wanted people to calm down, but they forgot that that's an addictive substance. As to pain, obviously, when we're seeing so many patients, not in our environment, but in a fee for service environment, you can bet that doctors really who see 30 or 40 patients can't spend more than a certain amount of time talking somebody out of the prescription. So they usually give in and give the prescription for pain medication.
0: There was a piece in the New York Times recently about prescribing drugs to seniors that really are not recommended, Valium being one. Uh, And the best time of day to ask your doctor for that prescription is late in the day. They're too tired to fight with you.
1: Thank you for empowering us, Ron.
4: You know, it makes so much sense, though, if you really think about it. I have an old saying, which everybody, I'm sure, will bear it out. It takes five minutes to tell somebody yes, and it takes 40 minutes to tell somebody no.
0: Exactly. So if
4: you have 30 patients and a bunch waiting in the waiting room, what are you going to say? And unfortunately, you see doctors who aren't really monitored in a fee-for-service environment taking the path of least resistance.
1: So what what's the answer? Um, if I'm that older person and I've been taking you know, Valium for years, anti-anxiety or painkillers, what should I be doing instead? Let's say it's painkillers. I am in pain. I have horrible arthritis. What's, what's the answer if I can't take my painkillers?
4: Well, actually, you can. I, I Pain is legitimate. And the last thing I want to be is a zealot on top of a mountain telling people that they can't treat their pain. Pain is certainly legitimate. And there's legitimate, you know, pain medication for that. What happens often is that a primary care doctor or any doctor, neurologist, a specialist who prescribes pain remedies doesn't even know the behavioral health history of the person in front of them. You know, psychiatry usually with that world, and, and you're not seeing many people refer, or many physicians, if you will, refer out to a psychiatrist. So if you don't know the behavioral health history and you're using you know, an addictive substance, chances are the person is going to become addicted. So there are several things you need to do. You need to hopefully get caregivers involved and educate them as to what to watch in their loved one and to make sure they're watching them. And if they do, make sure they're part of the treatment team and can come back and and, and discuss it. Also, you want to make sure you give um, patients immediate visits back. I mean, I've often seen patients who took opiates for a length of time not necessarily come back and find out they're addicted, and then not come back to their doctor because they don't believe their doctor will write them prescriptions. So there are a whole group of things you can do, but support and connecting a senior is the most important thing. But dealing
0: with the pain, I'm sorry, the pain is, as Carol said, a a very real issue. And I I know there are many who specialize in pain medicine who will tell you their concern very often is that doctors under-prescribe.
4: And that may well be true also as a reaction, Ron. I'm not saying... That many now, you know, in America, we tend to overreact to certain things, and we we then come back, and the the, the pendulum gets to the if we hope into the middle, um, but we're seeing that. But I would think that in tandem with the proper pain medication, that a good pain specialist remember what I'm saying, pain specialist because they are truly trained in that. I said in addition to that, I think there are complementary medicine interventions. You know, there's there's meditation, there's mindfulness, there's a lot of biofeedback, uh, there's support groups. There's so many things, I think, that can be added uh, in tandem with the pain medication. Yeah, I re- good I- oversight, good case management, uh, and good you know uh, quality utilization really helps in this process.
1: So I can remember a friend of mine whose father um, had terrible diabetes and it had gotten spiraled out of control and, and he had gone to... Big, strong, walking, hiking guy to in a wheelchair in tremendous amount of pain, lots of pain, Um, and he was just fighting, you know, the pain pills and being in the wheelchair and being depressed, all these bad things. And he did um, meet someone, a, a physician, who recommended some pain management, and it really was exercises in controlling the pain. Through visualization, visualizing the pain, getting smaller, 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 weep, weep. breathing through it like you would in Lamas class. Um, and all of those techniques actually worked. He was able not only to get off the pain medication, he was able to reduce his pain enough that he could did exercise and strengthen himself, got at, back out of the wheelchair, and he was back Mr. Hiking Man wow. again after a period of time. But it took that intervention. Um, of someone teaching him how to manage that pain and get through that really tough time.
4: You know, Carol, there's a whole show we could dedicate to this, and then probably we don't have the time, but you, what you just articulated was a Buddhist philosophy. They call it the two arrows. The first arrow is pain, the real pain, the pain that we feel, shoulders, in, emotional, um, back, you know, whatever it is that we're feeling. The second arrow, according to the Buddhist, is the pain of suffering. It's the story we tell ourselves about the pain, creating this whole world around this pain. You know, if you moved into the pain, like Carl Jung would say, embrace the shadow, and were able to really deal with it one-on-one, if you will, mano a mano, you'd find an entirely different sort of process. And let's not forget the health consequences associated with all this medication is is huge. It's balance, cognitive issues, it's depression. So to your point, and to the Buddhist point, avoid the second arrow.
1: So if what would I look for? How would I know that the person I'm caring for has an addiction?
4: Well, you know, you can watch them. Obviously, if, it's a, if you are a family caregiver or a caregiver at all, and you know the pattern of behavior they were before, it's basically not as difficult to see that they're in steady decline. But certainly you can see um, behavior that's hiding medication, if you will. You know, the, one of the big issues is doctor shopping. So if you start seeing a loved one, really, instead of going back to their own primary care or their own neurologist or whoever's treating the pain, but want to seek out another physician or an ER or another doorway, your, your, your alarms should go off at that particular point in time. If you do see balance and gait issues, if you're noticing different cognitive issues happening, uh, if you're starting to see sleep problems or depression um, or any adverse reaction, I think you really, you know, ha- should have a, a red flag go up in your mind. And what do you do well, in 20 seconds? An interesting thing, you know, because it's a long involved process of what we call intervention. But I think you first accept it. You know, you don't panic. You understand treatment for addictions are, are out there and, they, and they, they tend to really work. But I also would get the entire family involved. Gotta stop A the you right there. Caregiver You're right. I we'll would do another.
0: Sure. We'll do another take ten on this because we are flat out of time. Dr. Jamie Heisman, Carol Zernial, I'm Ron Aaron. We thank you for listening to us on Take Ten Caregiver SOS on air on 9:30 a.m. The answer. You've been listening to Caregiver SOS on air. Presented by the Wellmed Charitable Foundation. Email suggestions and comments on this radio program at wellmed.net and join your hosts Ron Aaron and Carol Zerniel for another edition of Caregiver SOS On Air on 9.30 a.m. The answer.